Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bo Nilsson. I'm an Associate Professor of Social Anthropology in Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we focus on an exciting new research project at the MF Norwegian School of Theology, Religion and Society in Oslo, a project that bears the name Mythopolitics in South Asia, the lifetimes of powerful stories. I'm joined today by the members of the Mythopolitics team by Momita Jen, Associate Professor of Culture Studies and also the project lead for Mythopolitics. Silje Einarsen and Guro Samuelsen are both postdoctoral fellows with the project, and Teang Teron is a doctoral fellow. Each of them work on their own individual sub-projects within the overall Mythopolitics project, and it's really wonderful to have the entire research group here today. So welcome to all of you, and thank you so much for joining us. As mentioned, we're here to learn more about the Mythopolitics research project. And in brief, this is a project that is funded by the Norwegian Research Council and seeks to understand the role of hegemonic Hindu story worlds in the contemporary political field. It consists of several sub-projects that analyze the political significance of Hindu myths and mythic narratives to Hindu nationalism, but also to the grassroots level movements that seek to deconstruct these story worlds. So in short, I guess what you're interested in is how mythological narratives underpin identity in the political field in the contemporary world. And we'll hear more substantially about this very soon. But first, Momita, I wanted to ask you, how did this project begin? Well, I was an overworked and wild postdoc wandering the hallways of the University of Oslo looking for you know, a job and thinking of how to sustain my career. And at the time, I was working on a postdoc project which looked at an anti-caste movement. It's a large formation of Dalit, Bahujan, and Adivasi uh, activists or caste minority activists, which was trying to de-Brahminize the minds of the actual majority of the nation, lay Hindus who are not upper caste. Now, what they were doing was that they were reading old scriptures and interpreting them as violent, amoral, and misogynist on social media. At the same time, they were also trying to uncover the hidden or lost histories of oppressed caste heroes against the grain of the archive, if you will. And they were doing this all on social media, right? I mean, some of the posts these guys had, oh my God, there was a famous one, which was of Brahma, you know, the Hindu deity. Brahma was, shall we say, being intimate with his own daughter, Saraswati. It was all pretty jarringly iconoclastic. So at the time, I went to Cilia, you know, my friend and expert on this subject. And I told her that, you know, I think what these people are doing is a kind of mythopolitics or as in it's it's a kind of political formation around myths. And look at how they're using the scriptures. I said that, you know, they're not expert philologists like Celia or others, but what exciting political hermeneutics or hermeneutics. <laughs> Never know how to say that word. But Celia was like, wait, just a minute. This is not technically incorrect what they're doing. And she told me, that even the hegemonic form is a kind of position reading, what the upper caste Hindus do with their own scriptures. And that set of alarms in my brain. 
it was also around the same time that I was having lunch with Guru. And I, I told her that, you know, I have this idea of a mythopolitics with all this caste activism. And she immediately suggested that the way the idea of Modi magic as a term operates in the Indian media has also a lot to do with these kinds of mythic ideas. So that's how the sub-projects took shape. And the Norwegian Research Council thankfully really liked our project. And when we advertised for the doctoral position, Theang here came with a really cool idea about a new religious movement in the Northeast in an indigenous context. None of us had any idea about that. But I mean, in general, in the context of the larger project, which is beyond the sub-projects, I guess it, it has to do a little bit with the fact that I have been an academic without a home in any discipline. I think I belong to visual studies, but that's housed nowhere and barely recognized. So I think that kind of background has given me a space to experiment with transdisciplinary forms of theorizing. It's been 10 years, which I understand in academic years is not that long. I have been very upset about why Jacques Ranciere is our only go-to if we want to study aesthetics, politics, and religiosity together, not as reified categories. In South Asia, why don't we have our own theory? I would say that I'm trying to find a transdisciplinary space for the study of the religious, the political, and the aesthetic in South Asia. I think that's a long answer to that question. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. I was planning to ask you actually about the the timing of the project also, given that it's happening now. Huh? But I was wondering what is it that makes a project such as this uh, so timely right now? I mean, what are the developments in the world today that mythopolitics is out uh, to understand? Or, I mean, maybe to be even more specific, what is happening in South Asia that makes this project both urgent and timely, given that all of your sub-projects are also focused on South Asia? Yeah, well, I think the rising religious nationalism or ethnic nationalism, as different people have called it in South Asia right now, I mean, it's giving us sleepless nights, right? And one of the things that I thought is uh, we need to really update our understanding of the interaction of religious and political affects, institutions and processes. And I suppose that's what we can do as scholars sitting so far away from you know, what goes on in terms of activism on the grounds of South Asian politics. I, I don't know what else we can really do. But I think for my individual sub-project, it was very important to show that the opposition to Hindu nationalism also generously uses religious symbols and mobilizes religious affects. You know, one of my interlocutors, he's a PhD student or used to be a PhD student in JNU, he told me, you know, madam, you're the book left. So you have all these hang-ups about religion. I mean, people on the ground don't have these kinds of elite problems. And he also told me that, you know, the left needs to get over its allergy towards religious forms if it hopes to survive in the contemporary political milieu. And that was also a big jolt for me to hear that. And I thought that, yeah, okay, maybe we need to go back to our books and see where we can change our assumptions about religion and politics. During the period of my fieldwork, I realized it's more complex. It's not just elite people who struggle with the way religion and politics makes. But I guess that that's, that's a different conversation. Hopefully we can come back to that another time. But I think the one of the other things that I thought makes the project relevant is how it's perhaps clear all over the world that there is an important question of stories, how stories are told, and how people believe if something is true. 
I think in the context of South Asia, it's maybe Deepesh Chakraborty who uses Bart's idea of the mythical as historical. So in other words, when, when so much research is devoted to fake news, that is how non-facts are established as facts, I was more interested in forms of telling in a broader context, not just as fake news as we understand it now. I think what the project tries to ask is how do we know what is true and what is fake in our history and how that is somehow in the telling. Right, and we'll come back to this question very soon. But as I've I've come to understand that you think of this mythopolitics as a phenomenon that exists also outside of South Asia. I mean, in the sense that while each of you ground your own work in the South Asian context, what you find is perhaps likely to resonate also outside of that context too. I would absolutely say so. And this is perhaps uh, something that we all will need to pursue later on. But the developments that we've seen in India over the past decade are, of course, very much part of a wider global turn towards right-wing populism and increasing autocratization. But the emergence and growth of right-wing populisms and its relation to different forms of of neo-nationalism in the US and in various European countries, at least in political science, this is what has put populism back on the map as a phenomenon that, you know, it tends to take us all by surprise. And we realize that we have an urgent need to understand it better. But these debates have been characteristically Eurocentric, which may not come as a great surprise, but they have also been especially blind to both the contemporary and also the historical experiences uh, from Asia. Latin America figures in populism debates, but Asia has been a very large blind spot. And I'm thinking, for example, then of this concept that has emerged of a secular or cultural Christianism, uh, where you try to understand the the populist appropriation of religion in the West in recent years. As far as I know, this has not been brought into any substantial conversation with the existing literature on Hindutva, which similarly sees Hinduism as not merely a religion, but as a culture, a civilization, and a way of life. And you know, while, of course, there are great differences between the continents in terms of histories and political trajectories and differences between the religions and the languages in which these narratives are, are spoken, visual and as well as uh, written languages, this is really a conversation that needs to happen. In terms of my individual sub-project as well, the Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, well, he's just one of this host of emerging and more or less established strongman or messianic leaders whose modes of mobilization and operation tend to defy materialist and and rational voter explanations that we tend to fall back on. But he is also a particularly powerful and particularly successful example of this wider phenomenon. That's another aspect that should warrant attention beyond area studies and political scientists that are uh, working in the region. Thanks, uh, Guron Samuelson. But let's let's return to the question of of narratives, Theang, which is a core concept in in this project. I mean, the lifetimes of powerful stories is even in the official project name. 
how are you thinking about storytelling in this project? Thank you for that question. I often find it difficult to answer because there are so many ways to look at it. It's just that from my uh, limited understanding, I think that uh, narratives or stories are innate in the evolution and in the coming of human societies in general. And storytelling can be understood as um, the oldest mode of knowledge transmission. And it is the origin or we can say foundation for any culture uh, that predates the written culture. As for me personally, uh, since I come from an oral tradition, so I mean, narratives are really important. There's so many stories like anecdotes, fables, parables, ballads, laments, epics. So, I mean, we can go on naming these genres. And and then the thing is, written history is, or histories are just, you know, a byproduct of these oral narratives. And aside from these narrative genres that I just spoke of, myth is the single most essential genre among all narratives. And it's always placed at the topmost when you talk about myth, because myth enables or it is still enabling the course of human world building trajectories and myths explain the cause for how what and why the world around us came to be and it also gives agency to the people talking about themselves and it can be widely found in all nation building processes although the interesting thing is the central characters in myths are always uh, supernatural beings or entities like gods so it is interesting to find this intersect in mythopolitics because stories are truer than truth, I heard someone say. Mm. So speaking of stories and nation-building processes, so in the context of Hindu nationalist nation-building, the stories of the Hindu scriptures become central, and this is where my sub-project comes into play. So Hindu narrative scriptures such as the Puranas, and the Hindu epics. These are narrative texts that comprise myths of the Hindu gods, and they present mythic human worlds that become ideal worlds. And scholars have argued that these texts testify to political and social changes of their time, and that they reflect cultural exchange between, on the one hand, uh, Sanskrit Brahminical culture, and on the other hand, tribal, more local, indigenous cultures. And as such, they were instrumental in the spread of Brahmanism and the formation of Brahmin hegemony. So in these scriptures, in the Puranas, various identities and various aspects of non-Vedic cultures or non-Sanskritic cultures were subsumed into the Brahminical hierarchy in the way that non-Brahminical traditions found their way into the texts and reappeared as Sanskrit myths. Yes, and what we are seeing is that these myths and, and narratives are also central to the formation of hegemony today. As is well known around this table, um, the Hindu nationalist movement in India itself rests on a tradition of reshaping Hindu mythological narratives for the purpose of political mobilization. So if we look at party politics from from being a marginal force in the political landscape until the 1980s the currently ruling Bharatiya Janata Party and its affiliated organizations have over the two past elections succeeded in building a popular mandate and a position of dominance that we have not seen in a long time and they use this position to 
challenge and undermine uh, long-standing independent institutions of the state and also the founding principles of the Republic. And for us, then, what is important is that this very journey began with the mass mobilizations of people in support of the um, Iran Janmabhumi campaign in the late 1980s. And the, the claim here was that a 16th century mosque in a North Indian pilgrimage town had been built over the remains of an ancient Hindu temple. And moreover, that this temple marked the birthplace of Lord Rama. So in short, these popular politico-religious campaigns succeeded in making claims of historical wrongdoing against a mythic figure in a mythic past into a salient political question. And I think what we're seeing today is that the current majoritarian regime is similarly buttressed by this kind of intensive labor of political myth building. Yeah. And I think even, you know, in my sub project, we're looking at this kind of mythopolitical kind of battleground. Because what I'm studying, this Asur movement, the main purpose is to break the political mythical base of Hindu nationalism. Now, let me just give a little bit of background about who Asurs are. You know, they can be seen as the adversaries to the gods. It's more complicated in philological and historical terms. But colloquially and in hegemonic myths, they are the demons. And one of the most well-known Asurs is Mahishasur, who is the enemy of the goddess Durga. Now, what we see in North India is this whole thing around Ram, but you can also see it around the Hindu goddess Durga. She becomes the model around which um, the nation goddess or Bharat Mata is modeled, right? So one of the things that the Asur movement does as a social movement is that they claim that all these demons are in fact historical persons. So Mahishasur is a historical character And they also subvert the hegemonic narrative around him being a demon and being evil and all that. And they say that he's a great king, a noble man, like all the other Asurs or demons, and that the gods were in fact scheming people that took away the lands and the waters illegally, in a way, from the so-called demons of today, that these were land wars. And in a way, what they're doing is that they're creating or as they say, uncovering alternative myths, what they call histories, about Mahishasur and other Asurs. And they are putting it all out on social media. In addition to traditional propaganda, by the way, in villages, there are also face-to-face meetings, flyers, posters, people go door to door and, you know. So yeah, it's it's a hugely mediated kind of uh, campaign around who Asurs are and the real story that both breaks and builds at the same time. You mentioned now a moment of both the sort of traditional media or traditional ways of propagating a message, but also social media. In this contemporary political scenario, what more specifically are the means through which these myths are being both constructed, but also circulated? I mean, how does the media of transmission itself affect these myth-making processes that all of you uh, study in your different projects? Well, I could uh, give an example from my sub-project where one of the bodies of material that I'm looking at is what I call the Modi hagiographies. That is a collection of tellings of the tale of the prime minister's life comes in a variety of popular cultural media. 
there are movies, TV serials, cartoons, uh, various kinds of online contents, mobile gaming apps. And since you mentioned propaganda, Momitai, this is something that interests me because, of course, these tellings are, they closely resemble uh, propaganda, to put it nicely. These are very sort of congratulatory and, and celebratory and, and one-sided versions of uh, the story, but it's not propaganda in the very traditional sense. It's not produced or overseen by a central state institution. It's more of a situation where snippets are reproduced and the overall narrative is to some extent organically construed. It's a free-flowing and open process where the story is told from many different sources at the same time. So to be more concrete, there is a basic narrative structure that is mostly recognized and adhered to, but these filmmakers and social media accounts and cartoonists and whatnot, they can add, you know, uh, poetic, dramatic, moral and political emphasis and elaboration where they wish. So this is also a creative space and a space that is utilized for a variety of individual purposes. People do this also to make money, perhaps to acquire some level of fame or to draw some attention to themselves. And in my view, this form of of openness is an important similarity between the production and the media, the uses of media that comes across in the narratives that contribute to the Hindu nationalist story world, but also in the narratives that contest the same uh, the same story world. Mm. Yes. So. New media also allows activists opposing the Hindu nationalist vision to use the same stories, to, to speak to the same story world uh, in order to create counter-hegemonic narratives. So whereas we've seen that Hindu nationalists have capitalized on the national broadcast of the epic Ramayana uh, as a television series and on the power of new media and communication technologies to turn such Hindu narratives into the narratives of the nation, now, social media provides opportunities for other voices to be heard. So here, anti-caste or anti-Hindutva activists spread memes, images, or short video clips in social media where they present alternative interpretations of these familiar stories. So an example is how they use the motive from the Ramayana of Ram's mutilation of the demon Surpanaka. According to the epic, the Sanskrit epic, Surpanaka wanted to marry Ram and threatened him and his companions. And as a punishment, Ram cuts off her nose. But in the alternative stories spread by political activists, Surpanaka is not a demon, but an indigenous woman. And Ram is not a Dharmic god king, but an upper caste oppressor abusing the indigenous population. So instead of creating entirely new stories, it is perhaps more potent or powerful to refer to the same Hindu nationalist story world in creating uh, anti-Brahminical political messages. Yes, at the same time, we know that in this age of, of neo-Hindutva, marginal and also indigenous communities are also touched by, by the long arm of Hindu nationalism in quite insidious ways. Uh, Theang, if I'm not mistaken, this issue is at the core of your research project. Could, could you tell us a little more about this particular religious movement that you're studying? 
Thank you for that question. Uh, so I'm, I'm studying this um, new religious movement by the name Lokhimon. And at first, when it emerged, it went by the name Aron Kimi, which in Karbi language literally translates to new reforms. And in the later iterations of the movement at present, it's known as Lokhimon Sangh. And it's a Vaishnavite sect and like emerged in the late 50s in the Karbiangong district of Assam. And initially it was founded by Lokhoning Tihensek, who is also the supreme leader and who is simultaneously known as Lokhimon himself. And followers revere him as the supreme leader and the avatar of Vishnu and the embodiment of all Karbi deities who has this amazing miracle performing feats. And the difference between the new religious movement and the Karbi traditional practice is that the Lokhiman followers think that the old Karbi traditional belief practices are irrelevant and outdated. And the interesting thing is that the followers of Lokhiman, yeah, they put on dress codes, which are like very uniform based and they engage in routine worship of the leader, which is not in the likeness of Hindu worship, but it is Hindu worship. So how is this religious movement tied to the growth of Hindutva and what role do you find that myth is playing here? Like how I understand it is that the myth of Lokimon is just one of the many cases that you will find in the northeastern part of India. I mean, not just in Northeast, but like all over India. Because um, the interesting thing is there have been a lot of these sorts of processes of vernacularization. And to name a few, the Maite people of Manipur is a product of Hindutvization or Sanskritization or however you might want to put it. But now coming back to the Lokhimon religious movement is that it garnered its legitimacy and recognition after associating itself to a more prominent myth from a dominant religion, which is, of course, the mainstream or Hinduism. And this movement is a form of organized and institutionalized religion with deep and direct affiliations to RSS and VHP. And it can be seen like from the Lokhimon movement, it can be seen as an act of soft assertion of new religious identity reform politics, which is backed by state agencies and religio-political actors in the making. And at this point, my focus is to look at the asymmetrical power relations and how the idea of belongingness is perceived at the margins, which are Karbi and the vernacularized, which is Lokimon and the mainstream. And here's where myths act as a intersecting platform that mediates all these three agents. Yes, and when we speak of hierarchies of power and power differentials in the sphere of myths and narrative, um, I can see there's also a question of languages here that can be said to occupy different hierarchical positions. I mean, Guru is dealing with uh, Hindi, Theang and Momita are operating with regional languages, and uh, Silje, you're dealing with uh, Sanskrit. What kind of place would you say that this language occupies in India today, and, and what does it signify? 
Yes, so I would say that since BJP's victory in 2014, we see that the position of the Sanskrit language and Sanskrit as culture or Sanskritic culture has been strengthened through policies, such as, for example, the new education policy of 2020, where Sanskrit is is to be mainstreamed in school and incorporated in higher education in the Indian institutions of technology, and also strengthened in political discourse. So here we see that Sanskrit is not so much treated as a classical language as uh, it is a powerful symbol of the greatness of the Hindu civilization, which we need to turn to in order to build a prosperous future. So the important role language plays in the formation of nationalist ideologies is something that is probably very familiar from studies of nationalism, but I think less focus has been given to the role of ancient and classical languages in modern nationalist politics and propaganda. These are languages that are not necessarily spoken and used for communication in day-to-day fashion, but they become symbols of the culture of the nation in its most idealized form and therefore important in the making of the myth of the nation. So we see clear parallels between how Sanskrit is used politically today to, for example, how Latin was used under Italian fascism. As a colleague of us, Han Lamisch at the University of Oslo is working on. So Latin phrases and tropes were, for example, used in fascist Italy. They were used in inscriptions, uh, in speeches and slogans under and uh, and by Mussolini to establish connections with uh, ancient Rome. And similarly, when Modi uses Sanskrit phrases, tropes and symbols in his speeches and on Twitter, this establishes a link between the glorified ancient Hindu past and the political moment of the present. So Sanskrit texts are full of politically powerful symbols and the language itself also becomes a symbol, not only of the past, but also for the future that the Hindu nationalists promise to build. Okay, so clearly both uh, symbols and symbolism also play an important role here. I think that is something that is uh, shared among the sub-projects. In my case, Narendra Modi himself has, over the years, been made or turned himself into a symbol in many ways. He is an icon or a brand, as some prefer to see him. So there has been this extreme level of of personification, perhaps the foremost characteristic of his rise to power, where his his appearance, his face, his name has been made into an acronym, his face is replicated in all sorts of uh, images and visual representations, and also in, in masks, rubber masks, so that people where when they go to his political meetings, you can buy them on Amazon and in in slogans and so on. So there is across these then, uh, let's say, genre of political communication, there is an apparent simplicity that also contains a fundamental ambiguity. There is an openness of symbols that is something that this modern political language and the language of religious myths has in common. And this is also a language that has turned out to be highly efficient in the both online and the offline world of contemporary South Asian politics, which is saturated with images and slogans and one-liners that are on the one hand loaded with meaning, 
but on the other hand, very open-ended, so that various audiences, thinking of the diversity of, of this audience, that various groups and various individuals can interpret them according to their own aspirations and needs. And I think the Indian right wing has very keen understanding of such ambiguous forms of communication. We also see now that the deities and the symbols of Hindu myths are used by, as mentioned, by opponents of Hindu in a way that we have not seen earlier. So we've already mentioned the memes of Hindu gods that are circulated on social media that ridicules the gods and points out oppressive or misogynist aspects of Hindu myths. And for example, uh, Mumita already mentioned a very cherished motive for these memes, which centers around the relationship between the god Brahma and his wife Saraswati, which according to some Puranic myths is incestuous and sometimes also rapist. According to some of these texts, Brahma is the god of creation, and he created first a daughter, Saraswati, who later became his wife, and they got children. So anti-caste activists use this motive in social media to create a counterculture, which they do by deconstructing and breaking the symbols of the dominant uh, Hindu culture. So Brahma and Saraswati, to stick with this example, they symbolize the sacred Brahminical knowledge of the Vedic scriptures, the Vedic culture, and everything that is sattvic or pure and righteous. They embody parts of of Hindu culture that were and still largely are reserved uh, for a narrow Brahminical elite. So... In the icons of Brahma, he holds symbols of Vedic rituals, like spoon for pouring oblations into the fire, for example, and he holds the scriptures. So he is the deified version, or we can say the embodiment of the power of the Brahmin, and by extension of the entire Brahmin class. So these very symbols are then used and remixed in memes, and they are remixed in a way that dismantled his purity, and by extension, the purity of Brahminical culture. Yeah. But you know what's interesting is also that it's not as if the response to all this is free of misogyny, right? So my sub-project is all about breaking and building icons and symbols. And a lot of this is about, as you said, the moral place of Hindu deities as symbols, right? And what I started studying this with was the whole thing around Durga. And oh my God, the talk around Durga, you know, as prostitute, as honey trap as you know, some sort of scheming woman when she's dangerous and powerful or really stupid, the other uh, way of thinking it, you know, was naive and brainwashed. So I don't know, but the thing is that because Hindu deities as symbols are invested with so much moral value, breaking them down also becomes politically significant. So uh, precisely because the Hindu goddess Durga is such an icon of chastity, virtue, strength, and so on, where she basically symbolizes all that is pure and good in the woman and the nation in the Hindu nationalist imagination. But that's precisely why the caste activists break her down with so much vitriol and vengeance. Perhaps the same is true for Saraswati. I think what people often miss, because there's a lot of talk about misogyny, you know, around this kind of counterculture as well, But I think what people don't see is that everyone shares these ideas about female honor and chastity. It's almost like strategy in a great game, like football. (laughs) You attack your opponent at their most vulnerable point. I was actually a policeman in a village in Purulia in West Bengal who gave me this analogy, the football match. He said that, you know, Durga is the football in all this. (laughs) 
And he's right in a way. The chastity and honor of the female body is the football in this. But yeah, I mean, in general, I think the power of symbols is absolutely at the core of what we are studying. And the way I see it more and more is the symbolic is held up by the mythic or the narrative. That is what, that, that's the matrix. And there is a more general point to be made here as well, as religious symbols and myths often play a key role in political and nationalist movements where this nostalgia of a glorified past or a lost, a lost golden age is central to political mythmaking. And with the global rise of religious nationalism, it is crucial to understand both these myths and the various mechanisms that play into their making. And this is what we're trying to do in mythopolitics. It's been it's been truly wonderful to have you with us in this episode, the Mythopolitics Research Team. Thank you so much for joining us and also for shedding light on what mythopolitics in South Asia is all about. A new research project at the MF Norwegian School of Theology, Religion and Society. And we look forward to following your work uh, over the coming many years. Uh, thanks so much. My name is Kenneth Bonilsen, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.